Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. In late 2006, a small town in the east of the United Kingdom was shaken by a killing spree of five women over a very short six-week period. Ipswich, a tranquil, historic town in the county of Suffolk in England, is now a thriving tourist hotspot with a waterfront location. The town has many lovely bars and restaurants surrounding its historic docks. Back in 2006... Like most towns, Ipswich had its fair share of issues, including a thriving sex worker industry based in the red light district in London Road. In fact, the problem was so bad that the London Road area of Ipswich was actually a no-go zone for local residents. The police approach to the problem was to arrest and fine these women, but ultimately they ended up back on the streets as they had no other options. However, the events of 2006 made people stand up and try to find a solution that actually helped women in this situation. Julia Stevens-Rowe, who was the Assistant Director of Suffolk County Council, worked with the local police district commander, Alan Caton, to come up with a radical plan for change. Residents were asked to keep an eye out and to report anything that they saw, which built a great community spirit. Julia Stevens-Rowe was quoted in The Guardian in 2016 as saying, quote, Local people wanted the area cleaned up, but they also wanted help for those involved. End quote. Thirty-two women were helped by health authorities, housing associations, social workers and drug treatment charities to get them off the streets. The police also took a no-tolerance policy on the purchase of sex and 139 people were arrested for curb crawling in 2016. The Guardian newspaper reported that street prostitution had not returned to the area, that the area was clean of syringes and condoms and that the local residents were no longer disrupted by quote, curb crawlers pimps and prostitutes, end quote. So back to the events of 2006. 
On Monday, October 30, 2006, 19-year-old Tanya Nickel spent the evening at home with her mother, Carrie Nickel. She left the house at around 10.45 p.m. to meet some friends. Carrie spoke to her daughter again just minutes later, at 10.56 p.m., to check that the bus had turned up and to wish Tanya a fun evening with her friends. This was the last time that Carrie heard from her daughter, Tanya. Carrie originally assumed that Tanya had gone to stay with friends and had forgotten to mention it. However, 48 hours after Tanya's disappearance, after hearing nothing from her since heading to get a bus, Tanya's mother, Carrie, reported her missing. Tanya grew up on a housing estate on the outskirts of Ipswich. The area was poor, with many people in low-paid jobs, with a high rate of unemployment. Tanya lived with her mother, Carrie, and her younger brother, Aaron. She attended Chantry High School, where she was one of 1,200 students. Tanya dreamed of becoming a pop star, but ended up in a series of low-paid jobs with few prospects, along with most of her high school friends. Leaving home at the age of 16, she lived in a hostel, where she began using heroin. As her drug addiction worsened, the need to earn money to pay for her habit increased. Originally, Tanya worked as a chambermaid, started training to be a hairdresser, and would sell Avon door-to-door. Later, she worked in massage parlors and was asked to leave the last one, as they suspected she was taking drugs. It was at this time, in desperation, she turned to sex work to fuel her addiction. Sandra, the owner of the massage parlor where Tanya last worked, was quoted in the Ipswich Evening Star as saying, quote, She was a placid and quiet girl and took the news that she had to leave very well. In 2004, Tanya moved into a flat in Ipswich as she wanted independence. However, this was short-lived, and she moved home the following year so that her mother could help her with her addiction. Carrie said that while living with her, Tanya had lost weight. Her skin looked bad, and she had found syringes in Tanya's bedroom. Tanya denied that she was taking drugs anymore and said that the syringes belonged to a friend of hers. Carrie believed her. When Tanya disappeared, her family and friends were shocked and surprised to find out she had turned to sex work. Kerry, Tanya's mother, thought that Tanya was working in a bar or a hairdresser's. Kerry did, however, say that someone from a massage parlour once called the house, asking for Chantel and Kerry also found a letter in Tanya's bedroom addressed to Chantel. A former school friend of Tanya's worked at a different massage parlour. She said she had been surprised to learn that Tanya was working on the streets, saying, quote, It seemed totally out of character for her. She was a truly wonderful girl, so quiet and nice to everyone. She was so pretty and always wore nice clothes, end quote. Tanya's father, Jim Dool, made an appeal to the public when his daughter went missing, saying, quote, Unfortunately, drugs took her away into her own secret world, a world that neither of us were aware of. End quote. Jim last saw his daughter about a week before she disappeared, 
He was quoted in the East Anglia Daily Times, a local newspaper, as saying, quote, The last time I saw Tanya was when she came around to home and asked me for a lift to her mum's. We were talking like mates. It was okay and it was good, but I think the drugs had made her sort of... End quote. His voice trailed off at this point. He went on to say, quote, I had no idea what she was doing. I knew she was taking drugs, but we didn't know she was on the streets. I had the idea she was going out with her mates, like all teenagers do in the town. When you see people gradually go downhill, little bit by little bit, you don't notice it so much. To me, she seemed okay. When she got out of the car and walked to the house, she never turned around and waved. She just walked straight inside. I looked at her and watched her walk in, and that's the last time I saw her. Tanya was a sensitive and caring person. She was popular at school. She was content until she met a boyfriend who smoked marijuana, and that was when she was introduced to drugs. Apart from that, she was just like any other girl, going through the motions of growing up. She meant what all daughters mean to their father. We love them more than we really know. If they mess up, we are here for them. We are there to guide them as best we can. Nobody gets a perfect life. We all have our problems and we help them in their situations. End quote. The police investigated Tanya's disappearance and tried to trace her last steps. They reported that Tanya was last seen getting into a car with a man on Monday, October 30th, 2006, in the Hanford Road area, shortly after 11 p.m. Shortly before this, she was captured on CCTV walking past Singsbury Petrol Station in London Road. Tanya was slim, mixed race, with long, dark hair. She was last seen wearing a black jacket, cut-off blue jeans, and high-heeled shoes. Tanya's naked body was found by police divers six weeks later, on Friday, December 8, 2006, in a river near Cobdock Mill, less than five miles away from where she went missing. Tanya's post-mortem was inconclusive. After five weeks in the water, a cause of death could not be established with certainty. However, her lungs were hyperinflated, indicating that her breathing had been hampered. There was no obvious injuries or evidence of drowning. Tanya's clothing and jewelry was never found. When Tanya's body was discovered, one of her school friends spoke to the Guardian newspaper and said, quote, We were always the ones at the back of the class giggling, and I think we must have got told off quite a bit. End quote. The Evening Star set up an online condolence book where friends and family could leave messages for Tanya and her family. Here are some of the extracts. From Sarah, quote, I know Tanya when we were young, and we had some good times. I remember making up dances with her. She was a beautiful young girl, very smiley, and wouldn't hurt anyone, end quote. Hannah wrote, quote, Tanya used to braid my hair when I was pregnant. She was so talented. A group of us went on holiday to the New Forest and had such a laugh. She was an outgoing, loving girl. 
End quote. Another entry said, quote, Tanya was my beautiful niece. She was loved by all the family. I just can't understand why some evil person would want to hurt her and her friend. I hope the police catch whoever did this soon. End quote. And finally, Tanya's grandmother wrote, quote, I am Tanya's grandmother. Me and my other children are very upset by the news of her death. She was a very beautiful woman and had everything to live for. End quote. At the time of her disappearance, Tanya was just 19 years old. Tanya's disappearance and murder was not a one-off. Unfortunately, this was just the start of a short killing spree for the man that became known as the Suffolk Strangler. A little over two weeks after Tanya disappeared, on November 15, 2006, at 1.15am, Gemma Rose Adams went missing from West End Road in Ipswich, just half a mile from where Tanya was last seen. Like Tanya, Gemma was also a sex worker who worked the streets in the red light district of Ipswich. Gemma was reported missing on November 15, 2006 by her partner of 10 years, John Simpson, after she failed to return text messages after a night out working. Gemma grew up in the small town of Kesgrave, just five miles outside of Ipswich, where she lived with her parents, an older sister, and a younger brother. She attended the local high school and had what some would consider an idyllic childhood, enjoying horse riding in the English countryside and learning to play the piano. Her parents described her in the Ipswich Evening Star as, quote, a bright and bubbly girl who was in the brownies and grew up playing the piano and riding horses. Her father went on to say, she was good company, bright and intelligent. If you asked her to do anything, she would do it well. We never had any rows with her at home. After Gemma finished school, she went on to Suffolk College in Ipswich, where she did a part-time GNVQ course in health and social health care. Following this, she went on to work at an insurance company where her father said, quote, she had drifted into the wrong crowd. It was then that her life changed. She turned to heroin at around age 17 and became estranged from her family. Later on, Gemma was offered help from her family to beat her addiction. They took her to see doctors and a community drug rehabilitation team, but it didn't work. It is believed that Gemma, like so many others, turned to sex work to fund her drug habit. After getting fired from her job at the insurance company, two years before she went missing, she was also working in a massage parlor until just a week before her disappearance. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Gemma was last seen alive at 1.15am on Wednesday the 15th of November outside a BMW garage on the West End Road in Ipswich. She was white, 5 foot 2 inches tall, with long blonde hair and a spotty complexion. She was last seen wearing a black waist-length waterproof hooded jacket, light blue jeans, a red top and white and chrome Nike trainers. 
she had several gold earrings in each ear, silver rings on both hands, and was wearing a black watch. The Ipswich Star, a local newspaper, spoke to Gemma's partner, 26-year-old John Simpson, at the time of her disappearance, and he, quote, urged people not to judge her and said he was lost without his childhood sweetheart, end quote. Gemma and John had been together for over 10 years when Gemma went missing. Gemma's body was found two weeks after she went missing on the 2nd of December. Trevor Saunders, a fish warden, was walking on a remote area of land behind Hintlesham Fisheries in Thorpe's Hill, Hintlesham, at 11.45am on Saturday morning, when he found her naked body face down in water. The location of her body was just three and a half miles from where she was last seen. Police officers and the landowner, Philip Dowding Young, both suspected that Gemma's body had been dumped into the brook from a roadside bridge and she had then been washed downstream to her final resting place. Mr Dowding Young was quoted in the East Anglia Daily Times, a local newspaper, as saying, Knowing the area as I do, it would be impossible for the body to have been placed there like that. I think further investigation will show it was either placed in at the bridge or further down. There is no vehicular access at the area where it was found, unless someone carried the body down there. The police couldn't get the body out because it was wedged in, so the fire brigade came and removed it on Saturday night. End quote. Martin Lambert, a local resident who lives near the bridge, spent the Saturday wondering why there were police helicopters in the area. Quoted as saying, I was thinking, why are they up there? Nothing ever happens here. There was a police car just by the bridge, but sometimes they just sit there anyway. I'm shocked about it, because it's a very quiet area. There's a lot of traffic, but not many houses. End quote. Gemma's body was the first body found, with Tanya's being located in the same stream, just two miles away, six days later. Like Tanya, this was an online condolence book on the Ipswich Evening Star's website for friends and families to leave messages. Here are a few messages that were left for Gemma and her family. A reader signing himself as Gemma Adams' little brother remembered, quote, a kind-hearted, fun-loving, cheeky, humorous Gemma. He went on to say, the woman widely portrayed across the media was the product of drugs and the massive hold that they can have and do take. One school friend said, quote, She always had a smile on her face. She was the girl that all girls wanted to be, beautiful, confident, and with her whole life ahead of her. A reader who had known Gemma when she was an addict wrote, quote, I met Gemma a few years ago. At the time, I was having trouble with drugs. The only thing I know is that the whole time I was mixed up in that nasty world, Gemma and her boyfriend, John, were the only good, trustworthy people that I met. And finally, a woman who used to work on the streets alongside Gemma wrote, It was a damn shame that it has taken your death for me to realize how dangerous it was. I will never, ever forget you, Gemma. You were a good friend who was there when I needed you. I know some people judge what we do, 
and I think that is wrong. But we are still human beings, and nobody has the right to take our lives, no matter what we do for a living. At the time of her disappearance, Gemma was just 25 years old. The police were concerned. A murdering inquiry was started. Were the two murders linked? Whilst the two ladies were not physically alike, they were both sex workers, went missing from the same area, and both bodies were found in the same stream, just two miles apart. Were they now searching for a serial killer? Were other ladies in danger? They needed to find the perpetrator, and fast. Just two days after the body of Tanya Nichols was found, police discovered another body. A white woman in her 20s was found at 3.20pm in Woodland, near Amberfield School in Nacton, about five miles from Ipswich. The body was seen by a passing motorist who called the police, though it later transpired that the body had been there at least three days, as it was originally thought to be a mannequin and no action was taken. This body was later identified as a Nellie Sarah Alderton, who was last seen on the 3rd of December. Her body was left in a crucifix pose, with her arms outstretched, and Nellie was also known to work on the streets in Ipswich. And Nellie's parents split up when she was just four years old, so she and her older brother Tom split their time between their houses. In 1992, when Anneli was 10 years old, her and her mother, Myra, moved to Cyprus for a job as an English teacher, leaving her brother with her father. Anneli, or Annie as she was known to her family and friends, spent a happy childhood in Cyprus with her mother and her grandparents who lived there. Her grandmother, Joan Molloy, was quoted in the Yorkshire Live as saying, quote, I remember her as a normal artistic, bright little girl, happy and alive. Her mother was quoted at the trial, saying, My daughter had been an excellent student and became fluent in the local language. Four years later, aged 14, Anneli returned to Ipswich in the school holidays to spend time with her father. Her mother said it was at this time that she, quote, began to change. In 1997, when Anneli was 15, she returned to the UK with her mother. Her grandmother, Joan, was quoted by Yorkshire Live as saying, Annie spoke Greek and got good grades in English and art, but she was marked down in science subjects because of mistakes with the Greek language, and it was decided the family should return to England. It was not long after they returned to England that Anneli's world fell apart. When her father passed away from lung cancer and Nellie was distraught, she started taking drugs and her life began a downward spiral. While Marie knew Nellie was taking hard drugs at this time, she was not aware of her being a sex worker. Marie tried to help her daughter, offering to work with her to wean her off the drugs, but her attempts were unsuccessful. Their relationship became more and more disjointed and at the age of 17, Anneli moved into local authority accommodation. Anneli's grandmother, Joan, said that, quote, Annie came from a well-respected family who had strived to save for years, to save her 
from her downward path. Going on to say, Annie has been a girl more sinned against than sinning, but became addicted to heroin by 2000, and Nellie found herself pregnant and in prison. Anneli's first stretch in prison was short and she was released in late 2000. She reconnected with her mother, who agreed to help her, and she moved back home. She was excited about becoming a mother herself and wanted to stay clean to look after the baby, but this was short-lived as she spiralled back into addiction and ended up returning to prison. In all, Anneli was in prison four times between 2000 and 2006 being released the last time in September 2006, just three months before she died. It wasn't long after she was out of prison in 2006 that Anneli met Sam Jefford at a drugs rehabilitation facility where they were both receiving treatment for addiction to Class A drugs. During the trial, Myra said that Anneli would visit regularly during this time, bringing with her dirty laundry and always wanting a bath or shower. She said, quote, She liked to be clean. She liked to have full makeup on. She liked designer clothes. End quote. She went on to say that Anneli's hair was naturally a reddish brown, but at this time she was dyeing it peroxide blonde. She was quoted in the Daily Mail as saying about the blonde hair, quote, It showed that she was being some drug taking girl out on the streets. There was two definite Annies, one with brown hair and one with blonde, end quote. Myra told the Guardian newspaper that the last time she saw her daughter, on December the 3rd, Anneli had brought Christmas presents for the family and left the bathroom in a mess. As she left to catch the train at two minutes past six, Anneli shouted, Goodbye, Mum, I love you. Myra didn't reply. Anneli was seen on the 5.53pm train going from Harwich to Colchester on December the 3rd before boarding another train from Manningtree to Ipswich. Then Anneli was never seen alive again. Anneli's post-mortem showed signs of asphyxiation. Anneli was three months pregnant at the time of her death. Anneli was pregnant with Sam Jeffords' baby, when she died. He was quoted on Yorkshire Live as saying, quote, She's gone forever, and she's never coming back. Neither is our baby. He went on to say that he knew she had been a sex worker in the past, but didn't realize that she still was. He said she was training to be a hairdresser and had applied to the Prince's Trust for a loan. He was asked how he felt about the killer, to which he said, quote, That bastard has taken away the two most precious things in my life. If we were in the same room and I had a gun, I'd shoot him. It's all he deserves. Tributes poured in for her and for the family when her body was found. Jane Rowe, a Nellie's stepsister, was quoted in the Evening Star as saying, She was very bright and very intelligent. She made you laugh. She was quite cheeky as a teenager. She was a really nice person. A friend, Natalie, posted on the Star's website, quote, Sweet Annie, I can't believe that that could happen to you and your family, and it breaks my heart. You were always kind to me when I knew you, 
and always so full of life. A friend, Emma, who had known Anneli for seven years, was quoted by the BBC as saying, quote, She was a lovely girl, very kind-hearted, and would do anything for anybody. But the wrong crowd introduced her to crack cocaine when she was about 13, and eventually Miss Alderdon turned to prostitution. Finally, Anneli's brother, Tom, said about the victims, quote, They were all little girls and in desperate circumstances. It helps everyone to come to terms with it if they think sex worker, drug addict. But nobody's anything 24 hours a day. And most of the time, in these girls' life, they were neither of these things. At the time of her disappearance, Nellie was 24 years old. But was Anneli's murder linked to those of Tanya and Gemma? Whilst they'd all been sex workers and had all been found naked, Anneli was found in woodland while Tanya and Gemma's bodies were found in water. Anneli was also left with arms spread like a crucifix, whilst it looked like Tanya and Gemma were both dumped over a bridge into fast-flowing water. However, the police were quoted by the BBC as saying, quote, the discovery of the third body is a deeply disturbing development, end quote, and went on to say, quote, while we cannot make a formal link, the facts speak for themselves, end quote. The police were taking no chances and concerns grew for two other women that had been reported missing in the area. Paula Clonell, aged 24, who'd been reported missing on the 10th of December. Annette Nichols, aged 29, who went missing on the 4th of December. There were concern amongst the public too, and a local businessman by the name of Graham Calbray offered a £25,000, around $50,000 reward, for information about the killer. On the 11th of December 2006, Assistant Chief Constable Jackie Cheer issued a warning to all sex workers to, quote, stay off the streets, end quote, for their own safety. Just one day later, on the 12th of December 2006, two more bodies were discovered on waste ground close to the small village of Levington, just five miles south of Ipswich. The bodies of two white females were dumped just 150 metres apart. In episode two, we will tell you more about these last two victims and start to learn about who committed these heinous crimes.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.